I'm going to begin with just a few comments that I would like for this class to be very dialogical, uh, just a, a dialogue. I hope to be asking a lot of questions as we go, uh, especially as we get further on into the, the class. In the beginning this morning, I'm going to have to do just a bit of, of talking, but uh, I don't really want to just talk for an hour straight. Imagine you guys don't want to listen to me for an hour straight. That's not very exciting. So uh, I would encourage you to be, be bold, be brave. We're in a community of grace where you can say dumb stuff. You can say things that are wrong, uh, and that's okay. It's better to ask a question and have it be corrected or even you know, have it say something that might not be the, the best possible answer and, and then we get to discuss it and get refine it and, and get a better understanding of who God is and what His Word says than just like we have these, all of us have dormant ideas, false ideas about God and His Word, and sometimes we don't, those don't always get corrected just passively. Uh, and it's good if we open our mouth and sometimes we say something and then it becomes evident that like, ooh, that, that's not right. Or when we open our mouth and speak that, oh, I don't have the clearest uh, idea, idea, way to understand this. So I would just encourage you, I'm going to ask questions, but encourage you to be brave and uh, be willing to give answers, even if you're not 100% sure that it's the best possible answer, that's okay. Uh, we're, all, we're all learning, we're all growing, and we're trying to uh, grow in our understanding of God's Word together. So it's okay if we don't always have a perfect answer. Uh, the other thing I have all the verses that we're going to read up this morning, but as we go on, I would encourage you to bring a Bible if you don't have a Bible this morning, and uh, I think it would just be healthy and good if we're flipping around and, and getting our noses in the Bible itself. With those couple things out of the way, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. What a privilege it is. What a joy to be gathered uh, as your people in this way to study your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you've made yourself known, that you've given us your word that's inspired and inerrant, authoritative, teaches us everything that we need for life and godliness, to live a life that's pleasing to you. So I pray that you would, uh, even now, open up Malachi to us and help us to live in a way that is pleasing to you. Let our hearts be receptive, soft, and moldable by your word. Uh, and just help us to, to grow in our understanding of you and our love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to need to just begin with some introductory matters of, about the book of Malachi, the kind of when, where, why, all that kind of stuff. So just to begin with, Malachi, there's a debate about whether or not this is the name of someone or a title for someone because Malachi happens to be Malach and then I is my messenger in Hebrew. Um, so Malachi literally means my messenger uh, or even angel, my, me my angel. So some people assume that this is not a, the name of a person, but it's uh, the title of the prophet, that he's the messenger of the Lord. And it kind of further complicates it that th this is a theme that runs through Malachi. If you will see in, I think, 3.1 and 2.7 that the, the Lord will send m my messenger before you. And, and literally, 
my Malachi. Uh, I'll send Malachi before you. But it's obviously talking about the Messiah. Anyways, I'm not going to wade deep into the waters of that discussion. Just simply want to make you aware that that is a discussion. I would assume that Malachi is a name, number one, because that's the pattern of all the other prophets in the scriptures. And number two, because it's very common throughout the scriptures for names to be significant and to carry meaning. Uh, So the fact that it's my messenger is not really surprising to me that God would sovereignly ordain this man to be named Malachi. Where? Uh, Malachi is ministering in Jerusalem, and that's sufficient there. When? This is probably the most important issue of the introductory matters. Uh, Malachi was a post-exilic prophet. Now, raise your hand if when I say post-exilic prophet, that makes perfect sense to you. Okay, good, good. Uh, So, this is really important. Uh, Just for all of your Bible understanding, not just the book of Malachi, but everything. Uh, Understanding the Old Testament especially. If you can get this basic timeline down, this is going to help you tremendously in just placing where things happen in the overall timeline of Scripture. So, basically, this is the whole Old Testament. We have the primeval age, Genesis 1 to 11. Then we have the patriarchs, picks up in with Abraham in Genesis 12. That gets us all the way to the end of Genesis. And then in Egypt, right, Joseph, the people are, they go into Egypt during famine. And then Egypt, you have a 400-year gap. Then Exodus, uh, they come out of Egypt. And then they're wandering in the wilderness. That, that carries you through the rest of the Pentateuch. Then you have the conquest with Joshua. Then you have the book of Judges. And the whole story of the book of Judges, as we've been learning on Sunday mornings, is that there is no king in Israel. And so the people did what was right in the sight of their own eyes. And that sets it up for the monarchy. Uh, First and second, Samuel, Saul, and then David. And then around 1 Kings 12, uh, Solomon has a son, Rehoboam, and he's a fool. And so the kingdom divides under Solomon. You get a divided kingdom between Uh, Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. And then so you have these two separate kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And then the Assyrian captivity, 722. Important date, just memorize that. Israel, the northern kingdom, goes into captivity with Assyria in 722. Uh, And then you have just the southern kingdom existing until there's three waves, 605, uh, 597. You could pick different numbers, but... The, the Babylonian captivity in 597. Uh, and then the people spend 70 years, roughly, in, in exile, uh, according to Jer- Jeremiah, 70 years. And then they, they come back, but also that is, has waves of, of their return, 538. So when I say post-exilic prophet, what I'm talking about is this period after the exile, when they go into Babylon, and then the people, there's a decree for them to come back into the land, and they, they return in 538. Uh, and then this, these are kind of books like Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, these books of prophets like Haggai. Yeah, so, so we have those prophets, 538. And so when we say Malachi is a post-exilic prophet, it means he is at least ministering after 538, after the people have been exiled, and now they're back in the land, uh, kind of rebuilding after this time. That is going to be really important 
if you want to understand what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the people in the book of Malachi. So people are discouraged, as we, you'll see in the book of Malachi. People are discour- discouraged, they're disillusioned, and that disillusionment is fueling a further indifference and apathy towards the Lord. Uh, and you might think initially, well, why are they discouraged? Why are they disillusioned? I mean, the Lord just graciously and mercifully brought them back into the land after they've been in captivity. Why on earth would they be discouraged? But does, does anybody already know why they might be discouraged and downcast rather than exuberant with joy during, even after they've come back into the land? Because the uh, new temple that they're building isn't anything like what Solomon had. The, the whole post-exilic experience is not what they had experienced before. It's mm-hmm. depressing when they look at it. Yeah. So, and, and we'll actually read a little portion of I, Ezra that talks about that. Uh, but it, it makes perfect sense when you understand two things. Their expectation and their reality. So, in order to fully appreciate what might have been going on in their hearts and minds, I just want to spend a bit of time reading through the Old Testament expectation for what regathering and coming back into the land meant. Uh, Because this is a huge theme throughout all the Old Testament. This is central. uh, And we're just going to be looking at a few scriptures. But turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28, 64 to 65. And if you don't have your Bibles, I I will put it up. But uh, ideally, I think it's good to to get our noses in the Scriptures. 28, 64, and then we'll read 65 as well. Uh, So keep in mind, this is Deuteronomy. This is Moses. Uh, (laughs) They're not even in the land yet. And we already have, in the book of Deuteronomy, we'll see the themes of exile and restoration that are being set forth as this is what's going to happen in Israel's future. Uh, so does somebody want to read that for us? Nice and loud. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and a failing eyes and a languishing soul. So in context, this is in response to their sin and rebellion and idolatry that Moses is telling them, you're not going to obey like you're, you're called to. And because of that, this is what's going to happen. The Lord is going to send you away into exile. He's going to scatter you among the nations. But then flip over to Deuteronomy 30. Okay. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there your God will gather you. And from there he will you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous than numerous than your fathers. Okay, so already, before they even come into the land, 
there is an expectation that a biblical precedent that they're going to be scattered because of their rebellion, and yet the Lord in His goodness and mercy is going to regather them. And what's going to be the condition of their, their regathering? Well, He's going to make them prosperous. He's going to restore their fortunes. He's going to multiply them. It's going to be even better than what preceded the, the, uh, the exile. Uh, and really, as we notice, these are just the Abrahamic promises that are kind of being reiterated. Uh, he's going to bring them back into the land. He's going to multiply their seed and he's going to bless them. That's the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. And this is Deuteronomy. It's the foundation of Judaism. And in Deuteronomy, we, we see these themes of judgment and restoration. And then all the prophets are just expounding the basic themes that Moses has set forth in the Pentateuch. So, as you read through all the major and minor prophets, what is the main thing that's being talked about typically? Judgment and restoration. And I don't think I need to show you all the places where judgment is spoken of in the prophets, because you just basically open up anywhere and you're going to find oracles of judgment in the prophets. But I do want to highlight just a few more places uh, where we see the idea of restoration and regathering and how central it is in the prophets. So, Zephaniah 3.20-21. time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you now and praise among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Yeah. So, so just, we get to the prophets, and it's the same thing being told them. Yes, God is going to send them away into to exile because of their sin and idolatry and rebellion, but... The Lord is going to make them renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. He's going to restore their fortunes. Ezekiel 39, 25-29. I'll just read this one. It says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery that they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I have sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land." I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. And we could go on and on and on and on throughout all the prophets with passages just like these that talk about exile and restoration and how the Lord is going to bless them abundantly and make them to prosper. And then we could find even loftier passages that if we're reading them in context uh, are speaking about just how glorious and how exalted Israel will be. So, that's a taste of what their expectation is, of like, we're we're back in the land. The Lord is going to bring all of this to pass right now. And then there's the reality. (laughs) And what's their reality in Malachi? Well, uh, actually, they're still a subjected people under Persian rule. So, they're, they're in the land, but the land's not really theirs. I mean, they're free, and they can do whatever they want as long as the governor says it's okay. They're poor. They're oppressed. This, this is not life in the glorious kingdom 
whose and their names is renowned among the nations. Uh, they're just a essentially unimpressive people. I mean, you, you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, the, the city is in shambles, the wall is broken down, and that was almost 100 years after when they initially came back into the land. Um, so this is what their, rea- their expectation would be was very high and exalted of, of what the Lord was about to do in, in a very immediately, and then the reality just didn't live up to that. And as you see, you read through Ezra, Nehemiah, and any of the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, uh, you see that spiritually they're not doing that great either. Uh, I would say it's not as bad as it was, for sure. They, they don't have the same idolatry, they don't have the same kind of high-handed rebellion, but there's a, another reality that their hearts still haven't been tra- transformed in the way that they need to. Um, so just to give you an idea, uh, Ezra 3, 12 to 13, uh, why don't we flip there, if you have your Bibles, Ezra 3, 12 to 13, so this is you know, towards the end of the Old Testament, chronologically it is, but yeah, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, so right before the wisdom literature. So th- this just gives a- another idea. This is what Beverly was speaking about. When the foundation of the second temple was being laid, and it says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. Uh, and, and so there's one generation of people who are rejoicing that the temple is being laid, and yet there's another generation, the older men, who had seen the glory of the previous temple, who were weeping because this is nothing. Like even the, the, the glory of the, the prior temple, let alone a, a glory that exceeded and surpassed the former temple. So... So just given that you have that dynamic of high expectations and a kind of dim reality, what happens in general when people have unmet expectations? Disappointment. Disappointment. Anything else? Anger. Anger. Comparisons. Yeah, comparisons. Uh, People, we become skeptical. Uh, We become bitter. We become cold. Towards it might be, could be a spouse, but in the context of scripture, towards God, and these are the the things that we see throughout the book of Malachi, and so now we're almost ready to, to launch into the book of Malachi itself. But I want to do one more thing uh, and just kind of lay out the structure of the book for you. So the way the book is laid out is through six disputes. It's almost like a a courtroom and Malachi is mediating this case between God and his covenant people. And God is bringing these cases against his people and then Israel is disputing it. Uh, And and so we have six of these disputes and and we'll just do them right up here. Or if you want to flip along in in your book, your Bibles as well, uh, you can look in Malachi. But these are the, the six disputes that kind of outline the structure of the whole book. And I, I'm setting these before us at the beginning because they give us an idea of the tone and the heart disposition of the people of Israel at this time. And that governs all of our reading. So when we start in Malachi 1, 
this gives us an, an overarching idea of how the people are relating to God. So Malachi 1-2, this is the, the first dispute where God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Uh, someone want to read 1-6 for us. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? All right, good. Someone else want to pick up the next one? You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Let's just keep trucking. Malachi 2.17. Who wants to read that for us? You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And where is the God of justice? And just to make it clear, you see the pattern of the Lord says something, but you say, and that's where the dispute is Lies. So Malachi 3.8, someone else. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Good. Malachi 3.13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Uh, and just as we look at these, we hear all these kind of, but you say, how would you describe the tone of Israel as they relate to the Lord? <laughs> yeah, literally what I thought was like, this sounds like an angry teenager. Uh, that's what I was thinking, like dismissive, proud, uh, and even accusatory towards the Lord. Like as one will look at today, how have you loved us? And the implication is obvious, you haven't loved us. You haven't been gracious to us. You haven't been merciful to us. Uh, so there's even an implicit accusation that they're bringing against the Lord. And all, all these things, yeah. How have we dishonored you? It just, it seems like rebellious teenager to me. How have we robbed you? And obviously, we're going to look at each of these texts as we work through. These were, will shape the, the whole series. But uh, I don't mind dwelling here because, like I said, it informs how we understand each part as we understand the whole. So even just from a bird's eye view, uh, what are some points of application that we can make for ourselves about how we maybe shouldn't or how we should receive correction and rebuke from maybe from others, but especially from, from God's word. Uh, what, what could we learn even from just the way that the Israelites are responding? What, what are some points of application we could make? How should we respond if the Lord were to bring an, an accusation against us? Well, we should repent for one thing. We should listen to the rebuke and go, oh, did I do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Good. A- anyone else? Meekness and fear. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And those are just not the things that you see being represented by the Israelites here. I think that's a good disposition. Assuming that you're in the fault in some way, 
Uh, whether, even if it's someone else, or, or whether you're sitting under the word, assuming that if someone is bringing an accusation against you, it doesn't always mean that, that you're guilty, but there's a readiness, a meekness, a softness of heart, a humility that immediately says, Lord, search my heart and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of life everlasting. Instead of this dismissive, how have we dishonored you? Uh, ben? Yeah, so like, this is fresh off the parenting class, so what we saw that teenagers are like, they're, they, they're quick to think that they're right and that they understand more than they do and we can be the same way, I guess. And like, I think we need to realize that God needs to interpret reality for us and that we don't, oftentimes what we think is right, we think how God should have loved us or how, what God's justice would have looked like for us or you know, what we deserve is actually not right. Mm-hmm. Our, our, interpret, our understanding of reality needs to be corrected, even. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah. Anyone else? I was just thinking about this question from a bird's eye view. Yeah, so I would say this applies especially, you know, on a Sunday morning when you're sitting under the preaching of the Word. This is, this is the opposite of the heart attitude we want to have. Um, assuming that we're in the right, assuming that, that we're just and vindicated, uh, we want to be ready to receive the word and, and be corrected, be challenged and convicted. Uh, and then I would say even in our earthly, in our relationships with one another, if somebody is coming to you with some kind of charge, you know, it's just so easy for me, and I'm sure for many of you, to assume a posture of defensiveness. And we assume that we're in the right. It doesn't guarantee that you're in the wrong, but are we ready and willing to at least hear people uh, with a meekness of heart and a humility? Um, because that's clearly not hit the posture of their hearts throughout the whole book of Malachi. Uh, okay, so with that as kind of a foundation, uh, let's go into Malachi 1 this morning. Uh, we're just going to cover the first dispute today, uh, which fortunately is brief, but at the same time in these brief five verses, it's also very profound. Uh, so Malachi chapter 1, we're going to be reading 1 to 5. I'll just begin. Malachi 1, 1 to 5. The oracle of the Lord, the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And To make sure that we're connecting the dots, uh, why again are the Israelites immediately responding, given the context, history, given where they're at in in the flow of redemption, why are they responding this way, immediately saying, how have you loved us? Because he hasn't met their expectations. Yeah. Uh, They're not in the place that they want to be, that they're expecting to be, uh, and so they don't feel like No, you actually haven't loved us because if you did love us, then we wouldn't be poor. If you did love us, then we wouldn't be under Persian rule. If you did love us, our temple wouldn't be so unimpressive. If you didn't, you could go on and on and on of all the reasons that they probably have accumulated in their heart of of reasons why, no, God really hasn't loved us, actually. And so that's the the essential dispute right there in in verse 2. And the following verses that we see in 3 to 5 are now, the Lord is arguing his case against them. Uh, 
how he has, in fact, loved them. Uh, and this is what he appeals to in verse 3. He says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may, rebu- they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Not exactly the argument that I would first <laughs> expect, but what is the kind of the summary of verses 3 to 5? What is God's argument in, in a nutshell for how he has loved them? Would you say it was something like... Uh... You're both wicked, but this is the one that I tore down. Yeah. And I loved you, so I let you be. Yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly uh, truth in the, in the way you, you frame that. It's like a, you think you have it bad, but these people actually have it bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's, I think that's, that's accurate too. Uh, anyone else? In its essence, he argues for his love for the Israelites by pointing out his judgment of the Edomites, uh, which is, of course, rooted back in God's sovereign choice of Jacob, from whom the Israelites came, and Esau, from whom the Edomites came. God could have appealed to a lot of other things. And that's where I would naturally go. If I was trying to show someone how God has loved them, I would say... I mean, you could appeal to the natural blood. The rain falls on you every day. God causes the sun to shine on you. He grows crops. He gives you food to eat. You have a family. You have provision for the day. All these things are evidence of God's mercy and kindness towards you that you don't deserve. And you could, there's all sorts of other things that God could appeal to. He could have highlighted specific blessings that you have the scriptures, you have the prophets, you have the promises. You, You actually do have a temple. You're back in the land. Uh, And I don't think those particular things are excluded by what he says, but he goes right to the source. And he says, I chose Jacob and not Esau. And I would say he highlights election because really election is the engine of the train and, and everything else is just coming in tow with that. So all the covenant blessings, they do have the scriptures because they are God's covenant people. They are back in the land because they are God's covenant people. They do have a temple because they are God's covenant people. They do have a wall and a city uh, and all of these blessings and they all are ultimately rooted in the fact that God is faithful to His covenant people. And so even though God did judge the Israelites, yet His judgment was not final. And ultimately, he did not utterly forsake them, uh, to use the words of Scripture. Uh, and, and we just think about comparing God's description of how he's relating to Edom in their rebellion, in their idolatry, uh, in verses 3 to 5. And now let, let's flip, actually, to Hosea 11, 5 to 9. Does someone want to read these five verses for us? 
They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Seboan? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come and rest. So what's going on in verses 5 to 7 of Hosea 11? God speaking to Israel. Uh, what, what's going on up here? Judgment. Judgment. Good. Ben, that's that's perfect answer. Uh, he's sending them away to judgment. They're going to go into... He's going to send them away to Assyria. He's going to scatter them. Uh, but what's going on in verses 8 to 9? Mercy. Mercy. Good. And I think the point in Malachi chapter 1 is that there is no verse 8 and 9 for the Edomites. God says, they're the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And that's not unjust, that's not cruel, that's not wrong of the Lord to exercise judgment upon those who rebelled against Him. And yet, there is a verse in 8 and 9 for the Israelites. And just as a kind of devotional point of application, I want you to take a moment, even you can close your eyes, and think about the most rebellious, ugly part of your life. Whether it's your heart attitude towards the Lord, or actually things, you know, outward rebellion against Him. The, The point, the moment in your life that you say, yeah, I was utterly worthy where it's so clear to you that a worthy of God's judgment and worthy of being consigned to destruction. And, or perhaps even as a Christian in a season of backsliding, you, you, you think about that, that moment or that season of your life, and I would submit to you that, that if you're a child of God this morning, that even though the Lord might have had very real displeasure or, or perhaps anger, be on account of your sin, that he looks at you in that moment and says, how can I give you up, O Raymond? How can I hand you over, O Joey? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy you. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And obviously there's complexity here. I think it's best to understand sections of Scripture like this is anthropomorphic. Uh, It's describing God using human language and human categories in a way that we can understand. Uh, So obviously God was not just overwhelmed with anger and displeasure, and then he actually thought about the implications of what that judgment would look like and was like, oh no, I, I can't do that, actually. Um, that's not what's going on. Our God is 
all-knowing, he's all-wise, he's immutable. Uh, It's not as if he's having second thoughts and going back and forth. And yet, this is how God chose to reveal himself in Scripture for us. And it speaks to the heart of God, the disposition of his heart towards those whom he has set his love upon. And even in the, the deepest, darkest acts of our rebellion, where we're most worthy of judgment, to use human you know, language and thought, there's this part of God that looks and says, I, I can't. I, I can't just hand them over to judgment. Why? Because they're my covenant people. I've set my love upon them. I won't do it. I mean, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I mean, this is such a, just a tender, warm picture that we see of God towards His people as they're wandering in rebellion. If you know anything about the book of Hosea and the, the function that that's playing as they are committing spiritual uh, adultery against Him, and, and He says, I can't. I can't make you like the nations. And there's a, there's a verse 8 and 9 for Israel, but there, there wasn't a verse in 8 and 9 for the Edomites. And God says, how have I loved you? Yeah, what, what kind of question is that? How have I loved you? Um, and there's a lot of interesting you know, theological conversations we, we could have uh, about this. But my point is simply that God has this compassion that even in the midst of his judgment where he sends them away into exile, he says, I can't utterly hand you over. I can't make you like the nations. I can't make you like the Edomites. And so this is According to Malachi 1, it's at the top of God's list of of how his love is evidence for him that even in his judgment, there's still his covenant people and and he has purposes. He's not going to give them over. So, and later on, Paul picks up this very text, uh, as some of you might know, and emphasizes that, not this text, but Malachi 1, uh, that God's choice of Jacob rather than Esau, was not rooted on anything that God saw or anything that Jacob did. Um, so turn to Romans 9, uh, 11, and 12. And then we, we will come back to Malachi eventually. Does someone want to read that for us? Romans 9, 11 to 13. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate. And let's just pretend for a moment that we didn't just read the text. If you were going to guess what the following phrase was, knowing that you're reading it in the Bible, and it's even a letter of Paul, And he says, not because of works, but because of, what what word do you expect? Grace or faith, especially in the book of Romans. These are the things that are always being contrasted. It's not of works, but of faith. And we naturally expect that to be the contrast of works. And yet that's not what Paul says. Even though he's been contrasting that throughout the whole book, Paul's emphatic that God did it this way. Not because Jacob was better than Esau, but why? Because of him who calls. And who's that? 
God. So when you break down the thought, it really is this. God chose Jacob because of God. Why did he do that? In order that the purpose of election might stand. And so when you hear the term unconditional election, this is what we're referring to, that God's choice of Jacob was not conditioned upon anything that he saw in Jacob. It wasn't because he was better than Esau. It wasn't because he was more commendable or even because he had a a, a faith that God saw. It wasn't conditioned on anything. It was conditioned upon God. Why? In order that the purpose of election might stand. God's purposes are found in himself and he calls according to his good pleasure. And you might say, but why? (laughs) Why one and not the other? Or even you might say, why me? Some people or songs say, you know, what did God see in me? Nothing. That's the whole point, that there was nothing in you that was commended you to God over and above other people. There's nothing that drew out God's affection uniquely about you. It wasn't because Jacob was better than Esau, but it was because of him who calls. And this is the whole point, I think, in Malachi chapter 1 of God's argument for how he has, in fact, loved Israel. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Is Edom called by my name? Does my compassion grow warm and tender for them when they do come under judgment? Does my heart recoil within me? when I give them over to the just deserts of their sin? And from Malachi chapter 1, it seems pretty clear that the answer is no. And we can just read Malachi 2, verses uh, 3 and 4 again. But he says, "I've, I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. There is no relenting here. And that's the whole point. In fact, God says, even if they rally, even if they say, we're going to build, God says, I'll tear it down. They will be called the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And perhaps there's a lot of questions that might be swirling around in in your head right now, uh, and we can pursue those later. But I just want to highlight and ask the question, uh, if we're honest, is this the kind of passage that we feel like this is a a real crowd pleaser? Like, this will preach. Like, this is going to attract a lot of people. Uh, Or perhaps... Even for ourselves, is this the kind of passage that we're inclined to? You know, are are we going to put this on our coffee mug and, you know, we're going to calligraphy that on our wall? Is is this that kind of verse? No. No. And yet, what is the response that God expects from his people in light of this verse, this passage in in verse 5? What does God expect his people? To, to say and to respond with. Worship. Yeah, worship. Adoration. God's justice is being vindicated 
through the, the judgment of his enemies. And this is not something that's exclusive to the Old Testament. Even Revelation, what are the saints saying? How long, O Lord, till you avenge the blood of your people? And I'm just highlighting this to, to say that we are often one-dimensional in our understanding of Scripture and the way we think about God. Uh, and, and we impose a one-dimensionality upon a God who is not one-dimensional. And so we just have to be careful because oftentimes we can think that we're being biblical and we're actually more shaped by our culture and, and what's common and prevalent in the, the culture around us than we are by God's Word. Because God expects, actually, He says, your, your own eye shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. But you shall see this. You shall see the judgment of my enemies and, and you're going to worship in light of it. And that's also what happens in Revelation 18 uh, when the beast is judged and the angels and God's people praise God that, that He has purged the earth of sin and wickedness. But how, how should we think about the statement Jacob I've loved but Esau I've hated? So this is, I mentioned earlier, umbrella of grace. <laughs> we can say things that are not perfectly correct, but how should we think about a statement like that? How would you interpret it? Good and evil. Good and evil judgment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it really wasn't that uh, Jacob was all that good. <laughs> he was a bit of a rascal, actually. But uh, God chooses. Mm-hmm. He will be mercy on who, merciful on who he will be merciful on. Yeah, and just to be honest, I don't know about you guys, I've heard a lot that just out of the gate, God cannot hate. God is love, God cannot hate. You know, is, and again, we have to test what Scripture says, or test what we're hearing in the culture, or test anything that's being said against Scripture. Uh, and we see all throughout Scripture that hate is not something that's incompatible with God's righteous and just character. Uh, it's not. I would simply highlight that there are people who are going to read this and say, uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, it doesn't really mean hate. God is not hostile towards uh, Esau, but it's more in the sense that, you know, Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciple. So it's not that he hates Esau, but he just loves him less. Uh, and I would say, if you're going to make a case like that, where, where you're, you know, going against, sometimes there are places where we kind of have to, we look at the plain, the, the easiest surface level understanding, and we say, well, there's other scriptures that might inform how we exactly interpret that. Uh, that's not totally unreasonable. But I would say, in light of the rest of the passage, th- this is not God saying, well, I just loved him a little bit less, therefore uh, I handed him over to judgment, and they'll be called the people with whom the Lord, the Lord is angry forever. I don't think that characterizes like, well, I just loved him a little bit less. So, we need to, whenever you hear people 
again, this one-dimensional imposition upon God and, and what He's like, uh, we just need to be careful. How should we think about and communicate God's justice and fairness in this as we consider this and, and more broadly the, the doctrine of election? Uh, Jacob, I've loved, but Esau, I've hated. Uh, how do we think about God? Some, somebody says, you know, that's not fair. How do we respond? Or maybe, uh, maybe that's how you feel <laughs> as you read it. Uh, how do we think about that? It's not fair that we should have received. People should have received any love. Mm-hmm. Everyone was equally deserving of his hatred. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the last part, where we're called, the expectation is to praise. When you realize that, like, wow, that some people were chosen, um, and that should cause you to glorify him because you were deserving of that same counter. Yeah, basically, he saw God what he deserved justice. We all deserve justice. But he, his mercy decides to choose some to say that I'll give you mercy. Mm-hmm. Nobody deserves mercy. Yeah. Sure. But who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Yeah, I mean, Paul, Paul addresses this very issue as he continues in Romans 9. Uh, and that's where he ultimately lands, that there is a place where you simply bow. Uh, you just acknowledge that God is God and you are a creature. And, and he ends in Romans 11, you know, this section of scripture by saying, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given something to the Lord that he should be repaid? Uh, you know, there, the hidden things revealed to God and, and, or belong to God. And there's a certain place where we simply bow and acknowledge that there's mystery in not only the, the person of who God is, but also His plans and, and His ways. Uh, Paul says, how inscrutable are His ways? How, how past finding out are His judgments? And, and so there's simply a place for that. But in terms of, you, you guys already said everything that needs to be said, in terms of His justice and fairness, it's very simple. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned. Therefore, all deserve to die. So therefore, any time anyone gets anything other than immediate death and judgment, we're getting something that we don't deserve, and that's mercy. And so, neither Jacob nor Esau deserved God's covenant love and affection and restoration and faithfulness. Uh, The fact that he gave something he didn't deserve makes him merciful, not unjust and unfair. Uh, This is Jesus telling the parable of the, the workers who, you know, they all worked at different times. Some started at the beginning of the morning, 6 a.m. Some came at 5 p.m. And, you know, at the end of the day, they all got paid a full day's wage. And the workers who came in the beginning said, that's not fair. <laughs> I worked 12 hours. This guy worked 30 minutes. How are you going to pay him the same as me? And Jesus says, do I not have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Or do you begrudge my generosity? It's not that I was unfair to you, that I was generous with him. And you're bitter because I was generous, not because I was unfair. Uh, And so, just broadly, I think that's a simple way of how we we should think about that realizing and really taking to heart that the wages of sin is death. That's what I deserve. That's what everyone deserves. And if at ever, at any point, in any way, we don't get that, that's not God being unjust. That's God being merciful. 
Okay, does God say to us today, as his covenant people, I have loved you? Does God say that to us today? Yes, yeah. Uh, in very superlative ter- terms. You know, Paul prays that we would know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of God's love, that we'd be strengthened in our inner being, that we might know the love of God. We, we can't even comprehend how great the love of God is for us. And yet, are there times and places and seasons of our life where we might say with our mouth or maybe just feel it in the deep place of our hearts, how have you loved us? What, what are the reasons, whether it's you or just people in general, feel unloved by God? Unmet expectations. Good. <laughs> yeah. Unmet expectations. And what does that typically look like? Unanswered prayer. Good. Unanswered prayer. Health problems. Health problems. Unfulfilling job. Yeah. I mean, it's really not that different than what the Israelites were experiencing. The circumstances of their lives were not what they hoped for. They were not what they were expecting. And because of that, they felt unloved. And it's the same sort of thing that happens uh, where they were saying, God, if you really loved us, then why are we still subject to the Persians? If you really loved us, then why are we poor? And in the same way, we do it all the time, where maybe in the back of our heart, we're saying, Lord, if you're really good, if you really loved us, then you know, why is my child sick? Uh, if you really loved us, then why is my marriage so hard? God, if you really loved me, then why is this or that happening? Why am I sick? Why is my mom or dad dying? And it is the same exact thing. Uh, what do we need? So, so we have circumstances, but more fundamentally, what, what has happened in our own hearts that, that causes us to feel unloved? What spiritual thing has, has taken place in our hearts such that we now feel like that? Hardness. Yeah. Unbelief and doubt. Good. We're, we're not believing it in God's word. Anything else? Idolatry. Yeah. We're, we're setting our hopes and affections on other things. And I would say most simply that we have lost sight of the cross. The circumstances of our life have now pressed in upon us so significantly that they, they have obscured maybe partially or fully the cross. Because where is the love of God most chiefly displayed? God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we yet deserved this, Christ died for us. And when we lose sight of the cross, that's when we begin saying, like the Israelites, how have you loved us? Because this doesn't feel like love. And, and we're not looking by faith to the things that are unseen, but we're just fixated on the things that we're experiencing. And we're not... The cross is obscured. Uh, and so I'll just kind of close this out. Um, so if that's the problem, then what is the solution? Well, we need to fix our eyes upon the cross. We need to get the love of Christ, the love of God revealed and made known to us in the person and work of Christ before us. We need to set that before us in Scripture, in the music that we listen to, in the conversations that we have with other people. Uh, we need to get the love of Christ before us. We need to get election before us. 
and realize that there are countless other people in this world that they're destined for destruction. They don't have any hope of eternal life. And you're not any better than them. There's nothing in you that commended you to God before them. You have hope and a future and inheritance and it has nothing to do with you. And we need to marinate our hearts in, in these truths such that we see, may I never say that to the Lord. May I never feel in my heart a dismissive, how have you loved us? You know, how could we say that against a Lord who's a God who's given His own Son that He might reconcile, that Christ suffered our wrath so that we could be forgiven? Alright, last thing, I'll, I'll just close this off. What should we do if we're feeling that way? So if we are already there, uh, or how do we keep ourselves from becoming like that? Well, if we're already feeling like that, how have you loved us? Well, I would say acknowledge that to the Lord. We see in the Psalms a pattern that we can bring really ugliness, or like really ugly things in our heart to the Lord. We can bring that before Him and say, Lord, I don't feel loved by you. But I would say, as you do that, confess it as sin. Uh, say, Lord, I know I should. I know this is wrong. I know that I have been loved in Christ. Make me sensitive. Make me uh, aware. And make my heart soften to the greatness of the depth and the breadth and the length of your love for me in Christ. And then meditate upon the fact that God set His love upon you. And, and as we saw in, in uh, Hosea, there is a verse 8 and 9 for you. There is a heart that recoils and, and a grows warm with compassion towards you and meditate upon God's love. Any last comments before we close? Yeah, I have a question, but it's kind of a long question. But like, verse 5, we see God's judgment on the wicked is to lead to praise. Like, I, I don't usually, I mean, I, that's honestly something that I kind of struggle with. Like, I read yeah. in the Psalms about like God judging the wicked. And yet, like, I don't often praise God that way. Yeah, and I, so I guess my question, maybe this is for next week, is like, should that should we be praising God the same way, and should that be like a reality in our lives that we see God's judgment on the world in various ways now, and should we be actually be praising God in response to it? No, I would. Yeah, I, I would say my my simple answer would be like, in light of God's redemptive purposes that are being fulfilled in this age at this time, that, and because we don't know who are ultimately God's enemies uh, in, a, in a definitive sense. We pray for our enemies. We seek their reconciliation, their salvation. But knowing that on the last day, uh, I, I would say with a view towards the last day, that, that we're looking and longing for justice being established in the land, that God is going to purge the world of all sin, all evil. And so in light of the eschaton, the, the, in light of the final judgment, I, I think it would be right to say, Lord, you're going to do this, and it's going to be glorious, it's going to be wonderful, and it won't be, nobody's going to be like, oh, I don't know, should God really do that? As of right now, I, I think we're just laboring for people's salvation, and then when it's final and ultimate, and their rejection is definitive, then it will be, I mean, you read Revelation 18, 19, it will be something that all creation says, the Lord has done it. Yeah, Steve? So shouldn't it be more like a, a general praise? Like, 
you know, I think what you're saying, and maybe I'm simplifying it, but like, I praise you if you are going to judge the world, mm -hmm. right? But it's not specific towards a people or a person. It's because I deserve destruction, mm -hmm. right? And so this, I can't, like, I have a hard time, you know, you mentioned something earlier today, um, and I'm like, I deserve this judgment right now. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Like, there's no reason I, I, I should yeah. be a Christian. There's no way, reason whatsoever. Right? So we should have mercy and we should have compassion and empathy for, uh, you know, for the world. Just knowing that at the, at the end, it is going to be destroyed. And praising him for that because we ultimately aren't going to live, our, you know, we're going to have, I don't know, like we're going to be glorifying him because of it for eternity. So I think yeah. it's more of a general yeah. at this point. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's a good question, something that we can reflect more upon and uh, we can talk about it throughout our week. Uh, <laughs> why, why don't we pray? Um, Father, uh, we are humbled by this text knowing that we have been guilty in our own ways of, of the very dispute that we see represented in this text. We have maybe not said with our mouth but felt in our hearts how have you loved us? Uh, and Lord, what, what a heinous and what an ugly attitude that is to you, the one who uh, did not withhold his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. Lord, uh, may we see the love of Christ revealed in the gospel and be brought to a place where we are just worshiping you and grateful, submitted. May we humble ourselves before your, you as the eternal, infinite God, uh, that you have the right and the prerogative to do with what you want with what is yours. May we never proudly raise up against your, the ways of your providence, the ways of, of your, your choices uh, that you make, knowing that you're not accountable to us, Lord. But we, we thank you and praise you for your mercy towards us and, and pray that the mercy that we have received from you, that, that we would show that towards others uh, that you have put in our lives. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.